0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting or if you're a student here for the first time with us, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. We're nearing the end of a series uh, on the life of Abraham, so we've been in the book of Genesis. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 21. You'll find that if you want to use one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 15 of that Bible. Which reminds me, if you don't have a Bible of your own and an understandable translation and want to take one of ours, you may take one of those. That's one of the black ones under the chair, not like the one that belongs to the person next to you, but those that are, you can take those. As you turn in there, one uh, quick service announcement. I uh, want to let you know that, you know, as you may know, we've started two services today. We're back to our fall schedule, and that creates a lot of needs for help here, including a lot of needs for our children. We have continued needs for help in the nursery and for teaching Sunday school as well as for teaching children's church, which happens during the sermon portion of the service. So if you are interested in helping, we would we would love your help. Uh, we are growing to a size that we can't simply rely on all the old volunteers anymore, so we need new folks to sign up. Marty, would you stand up? Marty Hutchison's our... Children's director, go see Marty. And for those of us that have lots of kids, we don't want to have to stop doing kid stuff. So please, uh, yeah, sign up. Okay. Genesis chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 21. As we prepare to come and read this morning, let's pray. Let's go to our God from whom we receive this word. Let's pray. Father, uh, in heaven above, you see us and you know us, and you lean down close. You speak to us. In the very words of Scripture, you have not left us to guess who you are or what you were like. You have revealed yourself to us that we might know you. And so we pray that you would do your good purpose this morning of speaking to us from this portion of Scripture. Would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts, would you open our ears, that we might hear you. We are in need of your voice. We come asking you to do this through your spirit. And we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on, that, on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she took the child, put the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, up. Lift up the boy, and I will hold him and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us for our good and for his glory. This passage is about uh, a promise, a long-awaited promise of God finally being fulfilled, and about how that fulfillment of the promise both reveals and shapes the hearts of those in this story through their laughter. Because that's how people respond, they laugh. So we're going to see here this morning the laughter of joy and the laughter of scorn and how we can learn to laugh well ourselves. Okay, first, the laughter of joy. Verses 1 through 7, the first part of our story this morning, we see a a long-awaited promise finally being kept. And it's being kept here for Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, for years upon years upon years, have been waiting for God to to fulfill this promise of a child for them. Uh, It has been this lifelong dream denied them, yet God has spoken to them, even in their old age, saying, I will, in fact, give you a child uh, think about it this way. As we, we read in earlier chapters, Abraham's, uh, his name originally was Abram. And Abram means exalted father. So Abram is this guy who all his life bears the name of exalted father and, and has no children. It's, it's like Abram, you know, getting married at 27, 28 years old. And the first thing he does is he goes out and buys a minivan. Everybody asks him why he has a minivan. He says, because I'm going to have lots of kids. Say, so look at him and say, well, maybe, you know, okay, you don't have any kids yet, but you just got married. Sure, maybe. And Abraham drives that minivan and drives it and drives it for years and years. Look at, look at Abram, the guy with the minivan for all the kids and nothing. Drives it through his 30s, his 40s. He drives it on through middle age until finally one day God comes to him again and says, Abram, as I have told you, I'm going to give you a child. In fact, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they're going to be a blessing to the whole world. So much so that I'm changing your name. No longer shall you be called Abram, exalted father. I am changing your name to Abraham, father of a multitude. Receives this promise in his old age, so he goes out and he trades in his minivan and buys a 15-passenger van. (laughs) Drives it around. People ask why. He says, "Because I'm going to be the father of a multitude." Uh, His license gets taken away because his eyesight's not good anymore. (laughs) But he's still got his he's still got his van parked out there for years and years, waiting for God to answer this promise. You understand? He walks around with a name that says, "I am the father of multitudes, and I have no children." And he is old, and Sarah is past the age of childbearing, and still God's promise is out there for them until this day when it is fulfilled. When after all these long years of yearning and waiting, God gives them the child that he has promised them. As he intervenes miraculously and reopens Sarah's womb, as he enables Abraham and the two of them to have children together. You see, they have spent much of their life aching for this promise to be fulfilled for this child, and it has been. God comes and fulfills his promises to them, but not only to them. Because the promise was not simply for Abraham and for his wife Sarah, but as God had said to him, I am going to bless all the nations of the world through you. You see, the very fate of the world hangs on this promise being fulfilled. And so when Isaac is born, it is the first part of God's promise being fulfilled, not only for this family, but for us as well, for the whole world through this promised child, Isaac. And here in these first few verses, we see pounded away for us the fact that God is faithful to his promises. It's been hanging in the background for the whole narrative of Abraham, but now we see him actually answering those promises. God does what he promises to do. God keeps his word. We heard read earlier from Isaiah, not one word of the Lord falls to the ground void, but he fulfills it all. That's what uh, we see in verse 1 where it says that the Lord visited Sarah as he said that he would. He fulfilled his promise. Verse 2, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2, he, she bore a son at the time God had spoken of, the time that God had promised. Later in verse 6, she points herself again as she receives this child to God. She says, God has made laughter for me. He has answered his prayer. He has answered his promise for me. And so how does Sarah respond? She laughs. She laughs in joy. It's not the only kind of laughter that Sarah knows. Back in chapter 18, when Sarah hears God speak the promise that she will in fact be the mother of a child in her old age, she laughs in cynical despair. Verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? Assuming that the answer was no. She laughs in despair at God. But now God, in verse 6, He has freed her to laugh. And it springs from the joy that she knows, from God fulfilling His promises, being faithful to her, being faithful to to Abraham and the name that she gives this child Isaac is the name that God instructed them to give to this child back in chapter 17 when God first says to Abraham no 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 not only are you having a child Ishmael through another woman you, the promised child is coming through Sarah and when he comes you are going to name him Isaac and Abraham says are we going to have another child now that I'm old and Sarah is old and he laughs in disbelief also And God says, you're laughing now. Well, let me tell you this. When this child comes, you are going to name him Isaac, which means in Hebrew, he laughs. He says from the very beginning, Abraham, you're laughing in disbelief now, but one day you are going to be laughing in joy. Sarah, you are laughing in cynical heartbrokenness now, but one day you are going to be laughing in joy. And this child comes and they name him Laughter. And if you notice that when we laugh, the laughter, at least laughter of joy, always involves a certain freedom from ourselves. When you're laughing at a good joke, when you're laughing at something that happens in a movie, when you're laughing uh, at something someone says, you notice laughter takes us out of ourselves. When you are laughing at something out there that's come into your world, you're no longer staring at yourself, and you're no longer caught up in yourself. You're caught up in a joy that is external to you. And that's what happens to Sarah, gratitude and joy as she looks down at Isaac. He laughs, the very picture of God's presence and God's provision for her. She laughs in joy. She laughs over God's provision. She laughs also over, let's just you know face it, the absurdity of her situation. I mean, you heard what she said. She said, "Who would have ever said that I would be nursing children? Who would have ever told Abraham that he was going to that I'd bear a child in our old age?" In other words, here I am at age 90, nursing a child. And frankly, it just looks ridiculous. And it's worth laughing about because she knows joy. Because in in the craziness of her situation, God has shown up in the most miraculous way. And as if she's saying, I don't care what it looks like. This is my day of joy. See, God is doing the work of undoing the years of bitterness and disappointment in Sarah he's redeeming them through a promise that has been kept and he has taken what has become such a cold and frozen heart and he is thawing it out right there as she welcomes this new child into the world laughing in joy now that's not the only kind of laughter we see in our passage second part of this chapter or verses 8 through 21 we see that uh, there's another kind of laughter, and it brings all these uh, very difficult consequences here. We, we see Ishmael laughing and everything falling apart. Okay, Sarah has had this moment of joy, and her heart is begin, has begun to thaw. And then we read the next part of the story, and it, and it brings us right back into this question. Well, has it frozen up again? I mean, here we've got a picture of Ishmael laughing, and what does she do? She says, throw them out. Throw out this slave woman. Throw out her child. It's exactly what she had said 16 years before this when Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael through the, you know, through the result of a scheme that she, dream- that she dreamt up herself, and now she wants them gone. And Abraham listens to her voice, and he casts out uh, Hagar into the desert, and God comes and meets Hagar and says, I'm going to take care of you. Go back to Abraham's house. And so there they remain for another 16 years. But now here she is kicking them out again. What's happened? Is Sarah just given in again to her old bitterness, her old petulance with Hagar? It seems that way on the surface. But there are a few things in the text that I think tell us something different is going on here. Let me just tell us a few of these. A few things to note. First, unlike that first time, God here agrees with what Sarah has done. He comes to Abraham and he says, don't be mad. Listen to To Sarah, and this time do what she says. And notice, as though Ishmael has been named many times in the previous chapters, here in this passage he is not named by name. He is the son of the slave woman. It's as if he is already being sidelined, even in the story here. And God turns to Abraham and he says, Sarah is right. It is through Isaac that, that the promise will be realized, not through Ishmael. God does go on, though, even here in the midst of a hard moment, and, and does speak grace and provision into Ishmael's life. He says, I will make a great nation out of him as well. Because I love you, Abraham, I will take care of this boy because he is your son, and he will become a great nation too. However, he is not the son of promise. He is not the son through whom, through whom I am going to rescue the whole world. Did Ishmael's laughter, what was happening? Well, Abraham, it opens up here in these verses that they're, he's throwing a party. He's throwing a feast to celebrate the fact that, uh, that Isaac has now been weaned, which in their culture he'd probably be about three years old. And so they throw a party. Just as he was this miraculous child that has been given and they laughed in joy, now they laugh in celebration when they throw this party because certainly in their world it was no mean feat to live to be uh, age three to be weaned, to be a, a healthy child that can live and survive. And so they throw a party because they are experiencing the joy of God's provision. And what happens in the midst of that joy, in the midst of that kind of laughter, 16-year-old Ishmael looks at Isaac and he laughs. Now, the nuance of the Hebrew verb here uh, it means that this laughing of his was not a laughing of joy, but it actually represents a laughing in mockery, in scorn. In other words, when he laughs at this party, he's saying, oh, there's the promised child. Thank goodness we have him now, right? As he mocks and scorns uh, Isaac, he is rejecting God's promises, and he is rejecting God's plans. He's rejecting God's promises, and he is rejecting, ultimately, God himself. Why? Why? Why couldn't Ishmael celebrate along with everyone else? Why couldn't he enter into that joy? Well, because Ishmael's joy was rooted in was anchored in something other than God and his promises. He was the firstborn. He wanted to be the center of Abraham's uh, at the center of Abraham's line. He wanted to be the one who would inherit the promises given to Abraham. I mean, can you imagine what Ishmael might have been thinking? You know, here he is watching this party as he's been supplanted. And he says, I was here first. I am the firstborn. I deserve to be the one who is celebrated. This is not the way my life is supposed to go. This is not the way I'd scripted it, not the way I'd planned it. This should not be happening to me. So maybe here we have an Old Testament picture of what Jesus actually tells in a parable in Luke 15. It's not fair. Said another older brother, our father has killed the fatted calf for this three-year-old younger brother in an all-out feast. And all these years I've been serving my father, being good and dutiful. He's never even had a lunchtime picnic for me. And yet he throws a party for Isaac. And so to him, Isaac isn't the child to be celebrated. Rather, Isaac is the rival who has ruined everything for him. And Ishmael cannot see past that. A uh, number of years ago, Camper and I, when we were working on InterVarsity staff together back in North Carolina, uh, we, we had a friend who was another staff worker at a different campus, and she told the story about how she was sitting down talking to one of her students one day. And in this conversation, she was kind of, you know, low-level just complaining about certain things that were going on in her life. She was just kind of griping to her student about this. So this goes on for a while until her student stands up, and he starts to, and she starts to walk around her chair. And, and our friend says, finally just says, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm revolving around you because apparently you expect the whole world to. And, yeah, so uh, that lesson stuck with her. And in one sense, that's exactly what Ishmael is doing, right? He's saying, the world is meant to revolve around me. Surely God's promises should revolve around me, and I can't take my eyes off myself to look at Isaac to see the surprising ways in which God is actually fulfilling his promises. You see, Ishmael could have reacted very differently. He could have embraced Isaac. He could have accepted the fact that Isaac was the child of promise, and he could have found a life of blessing through his connection to Isaac. He could have found joy in the fulfillment of God's promises rather than in the plans that he's made for himself. You see, Abraham's uh, extended family here included people from other nations and other places that Abraham had brought into his family. And they were finding God's blessing by being associated with Abraham in the promise. And Ishmael could have too. But instead he mocks, he scoffs, he rejects the purposes of God. And he chooses something else. He won't allow the death of his ambitions. His joy is anchored in something other than God. You see Ishmael couldn't give up his dreams, dreams that were rooted in his own status and his own glory, dreams that ultimately that had nothing to do with God and what he was doing in the world. So he laughs and mocks and turns away and is excluded from the life of promise. Okay, there's the laughter of joy and the laughter of scorn? How are we going to learn to laugh well ourselves? I think it comes through two things, that we must be people who see the promise fulfilled and then rest in the promise fulfilled. First, we've got to see the promise fulfilled. You see, Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promises for Abraham and Sarah, but he was a partial fulfillment. Remember, God had come and said, not only am I going to give you one child, I'm giving you descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. But, uh, and he promised them land. He promised them blessing for the whole world. And Isaac was a blessing himself, but he was also one step towards the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. He was one link in, of the chain of God's work in history to bring all these promises of Abraham To fruition, one important story, one important chapter in God's story of blessing, his story of salvation. See, this chapter tells the story of Isaac, this promised child for whom God's people were waiting for 25 years and longer. But it's later in Scripture that we read of Jesus, the true promised child for whom God's people had been waiting not dozens and not, but hundreds of years. Here we have a child born to very old parents, miraculously giving birth long past the age of childbearing. And in Jesus, we have a child born to a very young woman, a virgin miraculously giving birth to a child with no earthly father at all. Here in Isaac, we have a child whose birth is celebrated by family living in a tent in the wilderness. In Jesus, we have a child whose birth is celebrated by the angels of heaven, singing glory to God in the highest and peace to men. Here we have a child carrying on the promises of God to the next generation. And in Jesus, we have the promises of God fulfilled for all generations. Here we have the very son of Abraham, but in Jesus we have the very son of God who comes to us The ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. See, Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed in joy when they received. They promised, they laughed, they threw a party. And we are invited to laugh as well. And we are invited into that same joy. And we are invited to come and attend that very same party. Sarah said when her child was born, uh, essentially this, Come, laugh with me and join in the joy of God. She said, Everyone who hears of this will laugh. They will enter into my joy. The offer is for them, for us as well. Come and laugh with me. That's how Sarah said it. Jesus said it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. One scholar commented on it this way. Our spiritual future rests on our response to Jesus, the child of promise. The rejoicing of faith leads to the path of blessing. The scornful laughter of unbelief means being cut off from God's richest blessing, the blessing of eternal life. See, we too are invited to come and find our hope and our blessing in this promised child, Jesus, who has come. We too are meant to find our joy in that and to find words to express it. This morning I read... Uh, on an online newspaper, there's a the, the vocabulary guy who does this column uh, every weekend, and he was uh, the the column this weekend was he was polling for the happiest words in the English language. So people were writing in to, with the words and phrases that were the ha- the happiest things you can say in English. Here here are some of the entries: Yes, uh, I do. The doctor can see you immediately. It's still within warranty. Your tests came back negative. It's Saturday, go back to sleep. The troops are coming home. I love you. And my personal favorite, a human voice saying, Hello, this is customer service. (laughs) But you see, in Scripture, we find even better, even happier, even more joyful words that Christ has come. Christ is risen, Hallelujah. that we find ourselves in this promise that has been fulfilled, that we see it and embrace it, but secondly, not only that we see this promise, but that we rest in it, that we rest in it. In other words, this is not just about an initial turning to Christ, but a daily living in Him, resting in Him Finding our joy in Christ. Being able to laugh in joy because of his resurrection and his ascension. Because he has us. Because the universe is about him and not us. Because our story is bound up in his and not the other way around. There is a struggle for many of us to take this overarching picture we have of what Christ has done for us. He's come. He's saved us. He's brought us to God. And that means that one day we're going to be in his presence forever. But a disconnect between that reality and then how is that supposed to make a difference for me today in the midst of all the struggles and disappointments and pain of life that comes to me on a daily basis? Well, the gospel comes to give us a joy-infused realism. When the gospel comes into our life and gives us this hope of Christ, the gospel doesn't and Christ doesn't and scripture doesn't ever try to minimize the real and continued struggles that we have in this fallen world as we wait for Christ's return. It is a painful place to be and so being a Christian means that you are committed to realism, seeing things the way they are. But it also means that it is a joy-infused realism because there is more to the story than just that. The gospel brings us joy because joy has invaded this world and invaded our lives. How do we get that? Well, if we're going to know that joy-infused realism, we have to learn to see things from God's perspective. And that means the actual struggles of our lives from God's perspective. All right, you've heard this question put to you before. You know, do you see things, do you see the glass half empty or half full, right? What kind of person are you? You a half empty person or half full person? And how does a Christian look at that glass? Well, a Christian looks at the glass and says, this glass is God's glass, and he has given it to me. And so I'm going to be thankful for every bit of liquid that's in here, and I'm going to Trust him for everything that is missing. This glass is in my life because it is the one he has given to me. And so I can look and hope to him. Because there is a God who has me in his hands, who is taking care of me. The gospel is true. My deepest needs have been met. I have been forgiven. I have been rescued from death and brought into life. What can possibly ultimately hurt me now? Nothing. Christ has me. And so I can take the glass that he hands to me. It's a way of saying what Paul said in Romans eight twenty eight: All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And you've seen as well, maybe in your own life or as you've observed others, the very different reactions people can have to some of the very same situations in their life. I mean, imagine two guys who come to work one day to find out that they have been let go from their jobs. And you can imagine what that might do to one guy as he is totally engrossed then in anger and in bitterness. He's thinking about what he can say is his parting shot to his boss. He feels crushed and angry and despairing. What about my kids? What am I going to do? I'm too old to find another job. Whatever. And somebody else receiving the very same news that day. Maybe one whose eyes are on Jesus receiving that news that day. And what about him? He's hurt too. And he's knocked off his equilibrium as well, and he's unsettled, but he is not ultimately crushed. He looks at this and says, this is incredibly hard, but let me remember again, God is taking care of me. I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family, but somehow God does. I don't know how to take the blow this is to my pride, but somehow God is going to hold me up. Two people coming to the very same situation, coming at it and arriving in very different places. One with God's perspective on what's going on, in his life. You see, Scripture gives us the full range of emotions as we struggle with this very hard world. But it is a we can express our sorrow, we can express our disappointment, but as we do that, we come and express them to God, our Father, who listens to us and welcomes us in and gives us His encouragement and His provision. You see, if your final hope is in that job that you just lost, or in your health that is failing, or in the relationship with your boyfriend that you're not sure where it's going to go. Well, when that job is lost, or when your health fails, or when the boyfriend walks out, then your God has just walked out, and you're crushed. There's nothing left, because all of your hopes and dreams were pinned on that one very very thing. What does the gospel do for us? It frees us to say, no, 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 no. God stands at the center of the universe. He is doing something here. And Christ stands at the center of my life. And that means that when other things are knocked off and taken away, they are going to hurt. But your God is still there to hold you. Because he is never knocked off. And he is never knocked away. And he walks with us through the very darkest and most difficult places in life. God gives us... His perspective. And then just briefly, not only does He give us His perspective, do you see that in Christ, God has given us His actual presence in the struggles of our life? Jesus was referred to as Emmanuel, God with us, not God far away, but God right here in our lives, at work, even now. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, his marching orders to the church, the last thing he says to his people is this, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. We don't simply have a Savior who came and left, and we can't wait for him to come home, though that's true. We have a Savior who came, who is ascended at the right hand of the Father, and is mysteriously, powerfully, even within, in us right now. He is here. And as we learn to laugh in joy, we put our eyes on Christ for his perspective and we put on our eyes on Christ who is present with us now. What do you have in the middle of your struggles to laugh and find joy right now? You have God who is committed to you, who is fulfilling his purposes for you and who is giving you all that you need in Christ. And you have Christ who is with you in the middle of it all right now. He is here. And he invites us in that we, like Abraham and Sarah, might laugh and know the joy of knowing the promised one, the promised child, who is here for us, even today. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and come to you as people who struggle to believe and people who struggle to laugh in joy. Many of us, easy to laugh in cynicism, easy to laugh in pain, easy to laugh in disbelief. Would you give us a different kind of laughter? That we might see the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, that we might see your presence with us even now, and that we might be freed to laugh and know the joy of our Savior. We ask this in the name of that Savior, Jesus. Amen.